and we're live. Thank you for sticking with us for yet another episode. We are still going strong in season three, and we're just as crazy as we were in season one and two. And I don't know, Doc, are we going to call the sci-fi shenanigans like preseason one through three? I don't know. How are we going to do that? I don't know. The Dark Ages? <laughs> sure. This is year six of us podcasting together. Are you still sane? I mean, do I need to get you a padded cell yet? I would love a padded cell. Make sure to have like a slightly firm mattress in there as well as a very firm mattress because I'm very high maintenance like that and need two different mattresses. If I'm going okay. to be in a padded room. I mean, the only thing I require is like silence and just a book with nobody interrupting me. I'm just, I'm not asking for much. Just don't interrupt my reading time. Dude, you sound like a mom. Shut your pie hole. All <laughs> right. Hey, all you. Hey, are you crazy sci-fi? Hey, I didn't mention not following me to the bathroom. I locked the door. Thank you very much. All right. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. Well, mostly that's just Doc. But uh, without further ado, we're going to let our guest, Mr. Carl Gallagher, introduce himself to our listeners and viewers. Wait, wait, wait. I need to clarify. I put the fun in it. JR's just the dysfunction. All right. Um, Important distinction. Hi, I'm Carl Gallagher. Um, <laughs> I write science fiction. I have an occasional times in my career actually built science fiction in terms of designing rockets and calculating orbits for satellites. Uh, these days, I do paperwork because I have kids to feed and put through college, so got to go where the money is. But I release my uh, you know, unfulfilled rocket science fantasies by writing them into books. Okay. You know, that's a great so, way of doing it. Absolutely. I've actually met a few people that uh, picked careers because they couldn't be starship captains, so they got as close as they could, including one uh, particular sailor who became a, uh, a ship's captain for submarines because he figured that was as close as he's ever going to get. So, I mean, you're not alone. Yep. <laughs> All right. So the next part of the introduction, dear listeners, how we met them. So uh, so Doc and I actually met Carl uh, when we were at a viewing of Our American Cousin in Ford's Theater. The play was amazing. The ending was a little bit explosive and unexpected. But uh, after that, the rest, as they say, is history. And now he's here on our podcast. Wow, JR, you are so old. All right. I mean, I do what I can, right? All right, Doc. So we get to decide. We have to decide if he's going to stay. So for that, you have to ask him the religion question. Well, he might. I might be able to guess because he already likes explosive theater. So Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? Firefly is my true love, but I grew up on classic Trek. So um, I have to confess, I am a convert. I converted from Star Trek to Firefly. That's perfectly acceptable. That's okay. That is a-okay. Was it the old school style guns? It it was the working stiff trying to make a living, you know, th despite government regulations and interference. Because the older I get, the more I feel for that. You know, back uh, when yeah. I was a kid, the, the, uh, the Federation trying to make the whole world a better place seemed like a great idea. Now, no. <laughs> <laughs> There's amazing as you get older how many characters you can relate to that you used to think were supposed to be the bad guy. Did you ever watch that 70s show? Oh, haven't gotten into that one. Okay, so there's a character, the dad, who was supposed to be just a jerk, and now I'm like listening to him. Red, like, yeah. yeah. 
Red. Like I, I, I get him. He makes a lot of sense to me now. Oh, I've seen so. a bunch of red memes, and yeah, yep. Yeah, or, most uh, definitely. Apparently, they now brought back all like the original cast, and they're doing the '90s now. Yeah, with their kids. Which is making me feel even older because I'm like, it's not much longer until they're going to reach my adult years. Yep. All right, Doc. So uh, before we there get all no weepy, uh, lamenting our lost youth. But Game of Thrones, Wheel of Time, or Lady Hawk? Oh, Lady Hawk. Lady Hawk was just such a beautiful story. Um, and I gave Game of Thrones a try, but I just had to bail out when Stannis got his Father of the Year award. No, I was, I was just nope. Yeah, was, I can understand that. Is it that you just don't like um, Grimdark in general, or was it just that specific scene? Um, I am generally not a... I can take Grimdark in reasonable doses. I mean, I've read an entire Warhammer 40k novel. I can, okay. handle, I can handle a dosage of Grimdark. But, you know, as a pure diet, no, I can't handle that. I need I need some light. Game I need of Thrones something is superversive. A grim dark marathon. Yes. So you said you wrote Warhammer. Is that work for hire for the Black Library, or is that just fanfic from when oh, you first I just, started? I, I have not written. I just read. Oh, oh, read, read. Okay, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, those I, are I, good books. They're not, and they're not short either. They're not like the longest ones, but they're definitely not short, and they can be very dark. So, what was your first love, though? Sci-fi or fantasy? Sci-fi. Um, reading Heinlein, the Heinlein Juveniles. Um, inherited a uh, big pile of science fiction from my father as a kid and grew up reading them. And uh, the Heinleins are definitely my favorites. And uh, arguably, you know, between the man who sold the moon and the moon is a harsh mistress, that had me wanting to become an engineer so I could be chief engineer on a moon base. And then Challenger. Okay. So we've talked some about like what your early experience was also with that. But what is it that drew you in and kind of sucked you in so that that was definitely where you were belonging? Because I mean, I've inherited a bunch of stuff from my family, but I, di I did not get into it nearly as much. So what is it that drew you in? Just the, the love of going and exploring the unknown places um, you know, the joy of the, of building the powerful rockets and, uh, happily I did get to work on some rockets in my career. So, you know, fulfilled that part of the original inspiration, but yeah, getting to explore and move out into the galaxy, um, is something that that's really grabbed me. All right. So two impromptu questions. Then if Elon Musk called you up with his giant megaphone and he said, Carl, come work for me, design something. Are you answering the phone call or are you writing another book? Um, I will answer if I can work remote. Um, the, the family has had their fill of the Texas heat. That's why we've moved to Minnesota and are now buried in two feet of snow. Um, but yeah, I would love to, uh, I would love to help oh, out SpaceX. Hey, oh. Yeah, <laughs> being full time, I actually contemplated applying to SpaceX back around 2003, 
and uh, we needed to get the hell out of California then, so I did not. And I've read about what it was like working there, and you know, I would have loved the engineering, but my marriage would not have survived because Elon is a workaholic, and if you work for him, you better be a, a workaholic too. So, you know, if they want me to consult, if they want me to, to come review some stuff, happy to help them out. 60 hour weeks, no man, I'm too old for that. <laughs> All right, and everybody knows Elon Musk sent the Starman in his car into space. So if you're gonna send a specific car into space to, you know, mimic Elon's, uh, you know, issues, what car would you send instead? <laughs> These important questions, Doc, don't give me that look. Um. I would probably send a Dodge Shadow because I've already had one of those go up in smoke. <laughs> <laughs> so he knows they will propel. All right. Can you imagine if aliens are out there and they find this stuff? I'm like, what the hell are wrong with these people? Litterbug. <laughs> I mean, it's so, the ultimate act of littering. I could just imagine like that car hits something in the future and it starts like an intergalactic war because they think we shot it at them. Anyway, that's just my imagination going wild. So, how did your love? Your next short story, Jr. <laughs> yeah. So, how did your love of speculative fiction as a as a genre transition into you deciding to write stories in that space? Well, um, I always liked being a bit of a storyteller. Even you know, go back to uh, high school, I was the uh, the game master for our role playing games. You know, helping create stories for everybody. And I've enjoyed stories, you know, would tell stories to the kids and had these ideas kicking around. I had actually published some gaming articles before, um, before I started doing serious fiction. And so I'd had this thought of, yeah, I should try writing a novel someday, except the way the publishing industry was, that was just such an exercise in futility. I never bothered. And then Jeff Bezos created Amazon and Kindle. And it's like, wait a minute, I could actually write something and get it published. And so given the opportunity, um, and of course, I wasn't at the very beginning of, of the wave. There was, you know, I, I showed up to the party pretty late. Um, but I started writing stories and turned some role-playing adventures I'd written into my novel Torchship and um, wrote some sequels to make the trilogy. And now I'm doing other stories, most of which can sort of trace at least parts of their plots back to some role-playing uh, concept or another. Okay. So I've been having fun with that. So many authors will let their own real life experiences influence the stories they tell. So were there any specific formidable moments you think that shaped you as a storyteller? Um, I've drawn on my experience a lot. Um, my, my military experience, you know, is showing up in how, you know, the combat organizations in my books are getting themselves together to deal with a fight. I'm using my engineering experience for the spaceships and I use my uh, experience dealing with the federal government and fortune 100 corporations to do the villains. That checks out. Um, so you mentioned that you use your military experience. So what, uh, what branch of service were you in and what you do? 
Uh, I was in uh, the Air Force. Uh, I was a satellite operator uh, doing weather satellites. And, um, you know, pretty much would start out commanding a crew, retrieving the data from the satellites as they you know, came around the world every hundred minutes. Wow. And um, then I had a job uh, programming mm -hmm. them to tell the satellites what to take pictures of. And uh, problem was the Air Force spent a lot of money to make me an engineer and then didn't want me to do engineering. They wanted me to supervise the people doing the engineering, which drove me nuts. So I got the hell out and became a contractor building weather sat satellites for the Air Force um, and doing some other stuff. And then sometime later, after I came to Texas, I discovered the uh, Texas State Guard, which um, is a state-only organization that kind of handles disaster relief stuff when the National Guard has been deployed overseas. So we would set up shelters during hurricanes, hand out food, stuff like that. And so I wound up as a, a battalion executive officer and uh, got to work with that stuff. Um, fun crew. I had a lot of good sergeants. So, you know, it was, uh, you know, didn't have to give a lot of orders. It's generally just aim them and the mission got handled. That is the lot. best thing to do with an NCO typically. Yeah. A lot of states actually have those. I know Virginia and Georgia and South Carolina do as well. Um, so when you write these books, you talk about how your military experience influences the way you tell this. Yeah. Um, people that graduate from North Georgia Military College, the, the senior military college in Georgia, actually get a commission in the, in the Georgia State Guard. Um, so did you ever draw on people you knew yeah, while you were there. in the military? All right, um, Doc. I, this isn't your therapy hour. This is Carl's therapy hour. So let him talk. <laughs> I have drawn on some folks. There was um, one story I've written about uh, Space Force, you know, of some guys actually deciding to do a burial in space and it not working out too well. And then they have to go fix the, the problems with that. But a few of the characters in there are actually drawn from some of the folks I work with and, you know, see, you know, if you have a spacesuit and a body decomposing in it, gas is going to build up and it will, and when there's enough pressure, it'll rupture the spacesuit and the gases will vent, giving you a rocket like thrust. And I knew this sergeant who is so into fart jokes, I knew he would want to fart his way through space as a corpse. So I, I, had, to, I had to use him. And uh, another cranky uh, enlisted woman who was kind of, you know, it's like, you know, who was just sort of kept the insubordination down to the level where it wasn't worth doing the paperwork on her. Um, I might know that you know, person. She, yeah, <laughs> she sh she showed up in the story too. So your mission in the Air Force would that have been passed over then to the Space Force when they did the split? Yeah, Space Force is uh, is now handling that. Okay, I'm just saying if they ever open up positions for door gunners for the space shuttle, I'm I'm, I'm applying. Oh, you're not applying. I'm putting you on one. Bye. <laughs> I, I'm game. All right, so. <clears throat> <laughs> So uh, you've talked about how you, the, your military experience 
um, in the various facets where you served has affected the way you tell stories. So let's flip that a little bit. Does it change how you engage with content as a reader now, how you, the movies you watch, the, tea, the books, all that? It's um, It does affect me. I get a bit more analytical and I am much more prone to particularly watching TV shows. I was watching something with the with the wife last night and they have this scene and they go into a basement and then they pan over this workbench with a bunch of saws and hammers and such. And it's like, oh, Chekhov's gone. They are they are establishing that those things are theirs for them to get used later. And so I find myself being a bit more uh, analytical about the story structure and the plot setups and, you know, where are these plot threads going to intersect? Okay. So are you more um, analytical about the bad science that they do as well? Oh, I was like that before taking up the writing. Um, the movie Gravity, um, where I think it was Sandra Bullock is astronaut surviving a disaster that wipes out the space station. And uh, there was some great physics in that, and there was some terrible physics in that. And my wife and I had gone to a matinee where we were the only people in the theater. So my wife had to put up with me heckling the thing the whole damn time. Uh, um, mistakes were made. Yeah. <laughs> And it, and it was pretty clear that, um, you know, when the special effects guys were turned loose to do their thing, they had good physics. When the director wanted a particular moment, you know, they the director got his way, even though the hanging by the hand off the edge of a cliff thing that mountain climbers do does not work in free fall. Yeah. So... Uh, are you more annoyed at bad physics and bad science or bad military uh, as depicted on, on screen or in books? Oh. Frequently bad military is the worst because bad physics is bad physics, but the way Hollywood does bad military is frequently very personally insulting to people I know. It's okay. like... Yeah, it's like, here's some soldiers who don't like the pensions they got, so they're going to wage war on the America, on the United States, wage treason, and attack a bunch of civilians. That will drive me up. Yeah, I, as a military vet and a science person, I would definitely agree that the bad military stuff messes up, my, tweaks me more than the bad science, because not everybody knows science, but there's a lot more people who know the military, and they're really casting both characters of uh, negative characters on people when they do it when they mess up science it's just okay you guys are done so when people mess up science i think the when when someone corrects them like no they got that science wrong here's the equation or whatever people are willing to accept it and they move on when they get yeah. the military stuff right people tend to say oh that's just how it is and they won't ever you can never convince them sometimes once they've seen it on tv that that's not how it like like that's how it is and oh so yeah, you no. end up corrupting them permanently. I think with bad depictions depictions of people versus inanimate things, because I don't think people get as invested in science. Yeah, and those that do know when they're wrong, like they know when the TV is wrong. So, but 
Well, and also there's a lot more factual too about it. And it's easier to argue facts with science. But getting yeah. into some of the fandom stuff, have you had any cool fan art or a cosplay of one of your characters yet? I have had some lovely fan art. Uh, there's a guy, Winchell Chung. Um, if you're ever looking to check the facts on a rocket thing, the Atomic Rockets website is this beautiful reference. And uh, Winchell Chung went and made some 3D fan art of the ship from my first novel. And uh, I had That's some awesome. deck plan sketches and sketches, and he just took those sketches and turned it into a, uh, a really detailed model. And I have another fan who has made uh, 3D printouts of the ships from my science fiction series. So if I'm selling books at a con, I will put out front these little models of my ships. Uh, I actually know about that website. I use it all the time when I'm writing. So you know oh, yeah. the guy that runs it? Uh, Winchell, haven't gotten to meet him in person. Uh, Winchell Chung is a cool guy. We've traded email. Uh, I am actually the uh, the book that will come out, fingers crossed, next month, if everything goes well, is being dedicated to him. That is awesome. Um, that's so. exciting. <laughs> yeah, right, I'm sorry to interrupt, Doc. You could go back to your regularly scheduled programming. JR, it's adorable when you think you know things. So has any, what was it like the first time somebody asked for your autograph in public? Um, a little embarrassing, actually, because I was doing my first autographing session. And my wife had seen the things about various authors having women come up and requesting that their breasts be autographed. And so my wife decided, okay, if anyone's going to do that to you, it's going to be me first. So she showed up and I had to take a felt tip and perform the autograph. Well, you can't control your fandom, so it was probably wise on her part. And we won't go any further because family-friendly podcast, Doc. What? That is... I just meant that, you know, she may be right. And always good to get in there and be smart. Yeah. Um. So what is your weirdest or funniest fan interaction? We'll put that one aside as a husband-wife interaction. <laughs> um. I hope she's your fan. Oh, yes. Um, also, editor, muse, and audiobook narrator. Wait, your wife does your narration for you? That's kind of yes. cool. Yeah. Uh, she's done it. We are, uh, we're in the new house, so we are actually working on trying to get a new recording studio set up. Uh, first room we tried just did not have good room tone, which is, you know, the, the professional term for this place is just not silent enough. And so we're going to uh, <laughs> to move her recording studio into the library. Now, is she, uh, does she do this professionally outside of just doing it for you or is it just self-taught for fun? Uh, she's done, she's done, a, she doesn't do many, uh, but she's, uh, she did do another author's uh, book, a romance novel and uh, do that. But most of her audiobook work has uh, been on, on my stories. Cool. Keeping it in the family in a good way. Yep. All right there, West and, Virginia. Uh, yeah. I'm not so from West Virginia. So you'd asked for funniest uh, fan interaction. Um, this was, mm -hmm. you know, 
I think funny for the spectators, a little nerve wracking for me. There was a guy on Twitter, another engineer, who, when he started reading my Torchship trilogy, decided to check the math on every single number on in the book. So wherever I mentioned oh a speed, you know, distance, whatever, you know, this guy is posting to Twitter as he's reading his check of my math. And it's like, you know, what's the exit velocity of the rocket engine? You know, what percent of light speed is this missile hitting the planet at? Stuff like that. And, you know, and of course, being, you know, a professional, you know, nerd at this, I had actually gotten it right, but I hadn't had anybody check my math to see if I dropped a decimal point. So I was a little worried he'd catch something. That would be... Um, very nerve-wracking and because once yes. it's in print it's in print yeah so uh so. so when he hit the end of the third book and hadn't found any errors i was i was pretty damn happy <laughs> so one of the um one of the authors that i follow uh terry mixon also used to work for nasa and so he's told stories on his podcast about how they forgot to convert from um, metric to whatever. And they ended up one of the satellites crashed because of that. So now I'm like picturing that mistake. You're like, oh, shit, he didn't factor that in. Yeah. Um, a Mars probe was wrecked because they were, you know, one contractor was using metric units and another contractor was using English units. And that is why you always put your units on your math, people. Yeah. Well, here's the problem. Once you translate it into code, the code is just passing numbers from one block of code to another. And you can only check the units in the comments. Yeah. Oh. And that's what bit them. See, this is what happens Don't when you have a professional educational moment for the... Yes. Now, the thing is, if they had had comments on every line saying, you know, slash slash KG slash slash Newtons and someone else came along and read that as they were doing their interface, they might have caught the problem before they ruined tens of millions of dollars worth of Mars probe crashing, crashing into the planet. I would like to say they learned their lesson and they wouldn't do it again, but they got paid regardless. So I don't think they cared that much. <laughs> yeah. And you just know the guy who, who figured that out, got laid off and then they hired in a new kid from college who hopefully will hear the story, but no guarantees. Well, <laughs> he instantly became everybody's least popular person. Uh, are you sure that's not the guy that, uh, that thought Parsec was a unit of distance? On a certain franchise, just asking. All right, yeah. so uh, <laughs> this is the part I know who that is. You actually know the person who did that? No, I know what you're talking about. We had a okay. problem with that at Dragon Con on a panel too. <laughs> Interesting. All right, so this is the part where we uh, we ask you about everything you have written, Carl. So, can you tell us what the legendary Carl Gallagher has written? The Reader's Digest version of your body of work. Okay, well. The uh, first one I wrote was Torchip, where you can see on the cover our heroine, Michigan Long, and uh, her ship landing on an asteroid, which led to uh, future sequels of Torchip Pilot and Torchip Captain, because she did manage to get promoted. Good for her. Um, took a break from science fiction and wrote 
The Lost War, which is a fantasy novel about some historical reenactors getting sucked off to a fantasy world with some really, really nasty monsters. What, what era of reenacting? Uh, SCA. Well, yes! an, S, an SCA-like group. Um, because I pretty much filed off all the serial numbers because I knew if I made it really the SCA, somebody would show up and say, that's not how it works in Kalantir. And That's fine. As long as it yeah. works so in Outland. <laughs> so did they have um, actual weapons or were they using the rattan and the foam and stuff? Because if they're going to fight monsters with rattan and foam, they're screwed. Well, um, SCA is not a foam, foam group. Um, rattan. But, but there was plenty of rattan. And so you have these guys pounding nails into their rattan swords to try and get a bit more effectiveness out of it. Um, some, you know, some, you know, mil uh, war archers trying to learn how to hit a moving target so that they can actually hunt down some meat. And of course, the guys with the fancy ceremonial swords are now getting some real use out of them. All right. I might actually, is that one an audiobook? Right. I might have to check it out. Um, <laughs> that just sounds funny. The, the Lost War and its sequel, uh, The War Revealed, are both an audiobook. And uh, Warning, there are some horror elements into it because I decided orcs weren't scary enough and I should make them scarier. And it is the opinion of some people that I overdid it. That's fine. JR will be used to that. He likes horror. It makes him feel at home. Okay. Absolutely. All right. So the, uh, <laughs> oh, the new series <laughs> is uh, the Fall of the Censors series. Book one is Storm Between the Stars. Uh, where some folks in this isolated world go off and, you know, go exploring because hyperspace shifted and let them escape their, uh, their isolated bubble. And so they get to find out what the rest of humanity has been up to for the last thousand years. And the answer is humanity has been massively oppressed by a really nasty government. And so they figure out, it's like, oh, it's like, there's this government. And the government says, oh, people were not oppressing yet. We have to crush them. And uh, so far, there's uh, four books out in the series. Uh, book five is going uh, is going to come out very soon now, and I am working on book six. So current outline says it will finish up at book nine. We'll see what actually happens. And uh, okay. these, these have been... Uh, most of these books have been finalists for the uh, Prometheus Award for Best oh, Libertarian nice. Science Fiction Novel, uh, as was the Torchip Trilogy. So, you know, there are some folks really liking them and, you know, looking at how people resist the uh, oppression that I show. Um, the Censorate is the evil empire. And their problem to 1984 is, you know, how do you correct all of the... Uh, bad information is that they just erase everything. It's like, you know, you can write a book, you can show people the book or the painting or sculpture for your lifetime, you die, all your art gets erased. Which, you know, we're getting a start. Wow, oh, that's really horrific, especially because most artists are... Yeah, so... That would be really hard. So, you know, you have secret societies trying to preserve their hidden book in the sewers of the city. Um, 
Yeah, and of course, it's you know not just far future because we've got that going on today. You know, it turns out the uh, owners of uh, Roald Dahl's uh, estate, the author of Matilda, are going back and rewriting his books to make them uh, you know more in line with the current politically correct standards. So that's you know a step toward uh, erasing things the way the censor it would. Okay. Well, those all sound fascinating, but before we dig into the book that brought us here, we're going to pause for a moment while we shamelessly shill for the man. It's a man this time, Doc. Don't get upset. When the UN invaded the freehold of Grenya, the intent was simple. Force a non-compliant star nation back into the collective. The haven for every independent, rebellious, self-reliant adventurer in human space for the last 200 years. Grenya has resources beyond measure, and its inhabitants have one goal in mind. Make the invaders suffer for their presumption. This isn't just resistance, it's vengeance. Freehold, Resistance, a collection of hard-hitting tales gathered by series creator Michael Z. Williamson and BaneBooks.com. That um, is a good commercial because one of the ones Bane sent us, they mispronounced Bane and they said Bean. So, Bean Books. That was that was interesting. And it happened to be the commercial that sponsored us when we did the horror panel. And Tony Weisskopf was there laughing hysterically in the, in the green room when she heard it. So... I wonder what her what her uh, yeah, dearly departed husband you know, has said. He's not that. the one in trouble for it. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, thank you for sticking with us through that commercial interlude, dear listener, dear viewers. But uh, let's not dally. We're going to dive into the book that brought us here. So let's talk about Storm Drivers, uh, Storm Between the Stars. Excuse me, not Storm Drivers. Storm Between the Stars, which is book one of the Fall of the Sensor series. So how did you get the premise for this universe and, and where did you come up with the ideas? Was it psychedelics, Ouija board, uh, cabin fever being stuck in the snow? Because, you know, Doc and I are firmly convinced that Road to Hell is paved with snow. Okay. It is. I saw it at Fort Leonard Wood. So one of the, I, the first piece of this I came up with was uh, actually from a role-playing game. The, uh, the planet where our uh, intrepid heroes, you know, first make contact with the uh, the evil empire is Corwent, and I had uh, developed that in some detail for a role playing game. And so they have a clan based culture, you know. So your your family is your job, is your home. You know, you've got hundred, two hundred people. They run a business. You work in that business. You don't want to work in that business. You want a new job. You have to go marry go marry into a different clan, and if if you want to work for a business and nobody at that business wants to marry you or adopt you as a child, you can't get in. Um, that's their cult, you know. That's their culture. Now there's some other, you know, variants on the fringes. There are you know nomad seafarers who hunt the sea, you know, who hunt sea monsters. Um, and are living this kind of poverty level life to escape uh, the sensor at control. There are some farmers on the ocean floor because this is a water world. There are just a few islands with cities on them. It's almost, you know, it's 99.5% water. And so the farmers wind up farming the sea floor and growing their crops there and then bringing it by boat into the cities. So I had all of that created for this uh, space opera campaign and then looking at using it for a novel i wanted to uh, 
have a particularly evil empire and so looked at 1984 as one of our classic dystopias and it's like you know it's so much work coming up with a new version of everything you know to uh to get rid of the references to the unpersons what if you just erased it all wouldn't that be easier and so that's so you have the kind of government that goes from just wiping everything out and it's like we've been here forever there is no history you have no past you have no religion and so there's still people trying to preserve stuff in the nooks and crannies knowing that if somebody finds their family bible the whole family gets executed for it oh so, that's dark yes i mean you know uh, there's an anecdote okay this is from the second book where they're realizing that oh gosh our medical uh you know our medical technology isn't as good as yours because we can't collect statistics because if someone publishes statistics about dead people that's violating the rule and so there's this scene where this professor had published some health statistics and got executed in front of the uh, whiteboard in front of his classroom for having published this book so it's so no uh cause of death statistics no uh, improvements in medical technology so our heroes are also bringing some stuff in uh, that way um another thing and where the title of it came is there's lots of folks you know lots of stories where you have people doing hyperspace and hyperspace you just sort of disappear into it and you come out and nothing happens there which is boring we should have you know if you're going to spend a week in hyperspace going from one star system to another there should be something there and so i have hyperspace you know filled with this aether liquid and sometimes the aether solidifies and you have shoals and if your ship bumps into this shoal it will crush your hull let the aether in and everybody will die so you have to steer carefully and because you have you know pressure waves and such in the aether storms can form and so you suddenly finding yourself having to navigate around this hurricane or if somebody is chasing you and wanting to blow you away you might dive into that storm to try and hide spoiler so you know that's the um you know that's the pieces i pulled together for the setting and so then i wanted to start up my story and so i, ha I have the classic science fiction trope of the tramp freighter with a working stiff crew like you see in firefly or alien or any number of sh or your classic traveler campaign and so i have captain nico landry who is trying to make some money and they discover oh there's a breach in the shoals we can go through into unexplored space what's out there let's find out we've been isolated from humanity let's go exploring and they go out and they find the sensor it and realized we need to get home and warn people like now you know without like running away in any way that would look suspicious and bring attention to us so that's the tension of the first book and um, so we have the first so that's the uh, summary of the first first book second book is uh the censorate you know has found out and is coming to to uh, lay some oppression on these people 
And hmm. so their tramp freighter suddenly becomes equipped with some missile launchers and pressed into service as an auxiliary to help the Navy stand between home and ruin. So before we get too far into it, because we don't want to give away too many spoilers, how many books do you think this series will be? Right now, I have an outline for nine books. Um, I'm sticking fairly well to that. So I think it will be a nine book series. So okay. it will be finished in a couple of years at the rate I'm currently going. And, you know, and, uh, and I say this for the relief of anyone who's been burned by authors who don't finish this series. No, this will be finished. I will have those books done. And, you know, eventually there will be the nine book omnibus, you know, or eight or 10 book, but I'm expecting nine book omnibus so that you can have the whole thing as one volume for just for those who just aren't trusting authors to deliver. And I will be fair, readers have been burned before. And uh, I mean, and I'm a reader and there's a there's some books out there that I'm dearly, I'm eagerly waiting for book two and it's been years and it's never shown up. So I, I have complete sympathy for everyone who doesn't want to buy a series until it's finished. So here's my next question, because particularly since this is a multi-year project for you, what age range do you recommend this book for with like, obviously they're the, the reader is going to grow, but can it be like a young adult friendly book series or is it like definitely mature? It's, it's not intended as YA. The, uh, the main characters are adults, um, you know, 40, you know, there's a couple of different primary characters I switch between. Uh, so it'll be for a 48 year old or a 24 year old, depending on, on the book. But, you know, this is aimed for adults, but I would have no hesitation handing these books to a 13 year old. Uh, the violence is not graphic. Um, the sex is, I mean, there's very, there's very little sex in this book. Um, people actually complained about the amount of sex in the torture books and there was very little, but hard science fiction readers, uh, are kind of the anti-romance readers, apparently. Um, <laughs> they can grow and change. I started as one and occasionally I still pick up a spice book. Yeah. Well, um, but you know, I am, I am trying to keep it. Uh, PG, the the concepts are scary enough that I'm not sure I'd hand it to a 13 year old. But you know, if a 13 year old picked it up and started reading, I wouldn't worry about it. Um, the concepts are probably a bit much for a 10 year old, so I don't. I would not recommend it for a 10 year old. And yeah, I mean, you know, 17, sure, go for it. <clears throat> so so Doc, were you also making a Dune joke about the spice books? Was this another double entendre? Because this is a uh, you know science fiction and such sure we'll go with that <laughs> all right back on track doc try to follow the scripts i've been e reading eddie sky that will blame it heather hollow that works for me so um you showed us the cover earlier that's a really awesome cover art though do you jr you want to pull that up again yeah, there we go oh. so how um, did you come up with the art like that's you know i guess well okay the uh the ship design i did myself and um went to went ahead and and laid out the deck plans for 
okay, we've got this cargo hauler, but it's going to be moving through this, you know, the aether of hyperspace. So it needs to be streamlined. And Winchell Chung, who we'd mentioned before as the atomic rockets guy, um, he's a great uh, artist and he had done, uh, among other things, the uh, ogre cyber tank for Steve Jackson games. Um, I went, I went to him with my sketches and he converted that into a 3d model of the ship, which was just lovely. And so I gave that to my cover artist, uh, Augusta Scarlet, uh, who also did the torch ship covers. And so she did that. And so this is our hero's ship hiding out in a storm, you know, as they try to escape the, uh, the sensor it, you know, getting hit by lightning and blown about by the currents of hyperspace. And so I'm trying to show there's a um, guy, Jeffro Johnson. He wrote the, uh, the appendix N book about uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and he, he makes a point about a book cover. You know, his question for a book cover is something happening is something at stake. And so for this cover, yes, you have a ship that's definitely in a very scary situation, getting hit by lightning, getting blown off course. And so I wanted to have that feel of our heroes are going to be going into danger just to catch somebody's eye. Um, there's also, and this is kind of at the meta level for marketing, if you go to the top 100 space opera books on Amazon, you have a spaceship with a bunch of greebles sticking out of it in front of a starfield with a nebula. And they all start to blur together after a while. And so I wanted these books to stand out a bit and be different from your generic space opera novel. Um, I'm taking a risk because it's different enough that some people look at it and think that's not space opera, but you know, this is, you know, this is having to deal with the marketing side of the business. Is this, is this cover going to get attention? Is it going to get the right kind of attention? I mean, well, I think, I think it will in part, because when you look at the thumbnails for space opera books, a lot, there's so much dark that your eye is going to notice it. So. so you mentioned that this started with you designing um, the spaceship, like deck plans. Are we talking just generic sketches, like a strip map? This is the shape. This is what's here. How detailed is your is your map of this ship? Um, let's see. I could. It's pretty much okay. I'm I'm going to confess here. I did it in PowerPoint. Um, and it's just a bunch of PowerPoint circles and boxes. Um, cause you know, I mean, I will dig out CAD software occasionally. I use some CAD software for the illustrations for book five. Um, but if I'm just sketching some stuff, PowerPoint gets the job done and, you know, and you can size them exactly. So I have two scale drawings of, you know, here's the bridge, crew compartments, the various, you know, parts of the ship, you know, here's the size of the cargo hold, um, and so forth. So, you know, how many shipping containers can you fit into this ship is, uh, the sort of thing I, I was looking at. So I expect you to say you sketched it out on graph paper, just given that you grew up on, uh, Star Trek, the original. So I'm, I was surprised when you said you used, uh, PowerPoint. 
I have, um, I've kind of, I think the, some of the first sketches for Torchip uh, were on graph paper, but, you know, trying to get, I am not a good enough draftsman to get circles exactly. And so I will do it in software if I can, you know, if I can, you know, if I'm going to be doing stuff, you know, with, with circles, which, you know, spaceships tend to involve a lot of circles just because of the, uh, the physics of pressure vessels. Okay. Well, if you ever need an expert stick figure drawer, you just give me a call and we'll work something out. But that's about the extent of my awesome. artistic abilities. <laughs> so you gave us a little bit earlier, um, sort of a reader's digest or like a 30 second elevator pitch, but what do you think specifically about the sensor series makes it special? I think the, the specialness here is looking at how oppressive a government can get in control of information and how you can fight against that. And looking at it from a free society from outside trying to fight against it. And then you have the oppressed people who've been trying to keep their little bits of hidden information and how, can, how they can break out of that role with some help to fight against the, their oppression. And okay. it's kind of a great revolution story. And, you know, once they crack, once they manage to bring freedom to this one world, how can they look at getting freedom to the rest of the empire? Since naturally the empire is not going to let them go peacefully. You know, it's, so it's not going were you inspired then by real life history? Because I mean, you could almost be setting up the French and in, or the Seven Years' War and the the American War of Independence in space with what you're describing. There's some, you know, there's some of that. There's some, you know, a bunch of historical references in terms of revolutions against empires. Um, you know, looking looking forward to. But I have not worked out Book Nine in great detail. I suspect this empire is going to go the way of the Austro-Hungarian empire where it splits into lots of different chunks. And, you know, as the revolution comes through, you know, one piece revolts and another piece revolts. And rather than regrouping like Russia, where you had the Russian empire, which became the Soviet union and a surprising amount of stuff stayed the same. They just changed the name of the secret police. You know, this is going to be breaking apart and different people are going to go their own way and do their own thing, which for my personal view of liberty, um, freedom is not everybody getting the better way. It's everybody getting to do their own different way. And this is a story that has people getting to do that. And of course, having some of the friction of once you win a victory, the war is not over yet, but suddenly people have war, I want to do it my way. I want to do it my way. How are they going to settle these conflicts internally on the good guy's side? Because okay. You, you know, you have one world that's kind of, you know, like the USA, a kind of, you know, liberal capitalist atomized culture, you know, thing. And then you have Corwent, which is this very clannish culture, does things in a very different way. And you know, has conflicts because you know to them nepotism is not a crime; it's a way of life. 
So how do you resolve those conflicts while you're still trying to win this war against the big bad? Okay. So what tropes do you feel like you, um, you use the best in the storm between the stars? Uh, we have the, you know, the crew of uh, free traders getting, you know, these ordinary businessmen suddenly getting plunged into a world critical crisis. We have the punch clock villain because, you know, the people staffing the censorate are not doing it to be evil. It's just their job. And sometimes their job means killing millions of people. But, you know, they don't enjoy it. But, you know, if I don't kill these millions of people, I'll get a bad performance review and my boss will fire me and maybe execute me. So kill the millions of people, keep his job. Um, so the punch clock villain, sort of an extreme example of the punch clock villain trope. Uh, you have the classic trope of the junior officer having to rise to command as the you know senior officers are taken out by the enemy uh you have the there is a, a love story subplot where you have you know the guy on the one of the crew of the visiting uh, spaceship falls in love with a native girl on the oppressed world and then they're split apart by the tides of the war and are hoping to uh, get back together and eventually reunite. I'll save you the spoiler on that, but you you might have a guess on how that comes out. Okay. So you mentioned that this is hard sci-fi. Are there any other subgenres that you feel like this fits into? Well, this is Torchip was hard sci-fi. Um, this is more space opera, soft science fiction. Okay. Uh, because, you know, I have hyperspace, I have artificial gravity, I have reactionless thrusters. Um, a lot of the typical tropes that, you know, hand wave gadgets that let the story happen more easily. I mean, in, in Torchship as hard science fiction for interstellar travel, you had this limited gadget that had a lot of restrictions on it on it in order to to go in order to get jumped from one star system to another in storm between the stars you know you can jump into hyperspace and go wherever you want you just you know might get wrecked on the way um, so i'm trying to uh you know i'm giving the characters a bit more freedom so that rather than exploring the technology in this story i'm exploring the culture of what are other ways humans can can organize themselves in you know the industrial clan culture which is sort of taking the dunbar's number rule to an extreme uh looking at the structures of oppression you know if you have an interstellar empire like the censorate how is that going to organize itself how does it organize its people to keep someone from launching a coup how does it you know if oppress the population and get some tax value out of them with minimal cost on uh, enforcing security. So, so um, can you tell us a bit about your main character in all of this, or is it going to be a cast of uh, equally important individuals in main character? Well, okay. Um, our initial main character is Captain Nico Landry. Um, he's someone who would enjoy having a beer with Mal Reynolds. Um, he's just trying to keep his ship working, turn a decent profit, keep the crew from uh, causing too much trouble. 
and deliver cargo or you know his job when the story starts is performing a survey of to see have the shoals shifted and when he suddenly sees ooh, this shoal has a hole in it we can go out and take a look around he grabs that chance to see can i become rich and no longer have to worry about mortgage payments um and he's doing that and discovers, ooh, world-threatening crisis. I need to get home. <coughs> I beg your pardon. I need to get home and warn people. So I switched okay. to a different viewpoint character for three and four, and then for uh, books two and three, and then book four, Nico is the uh, the main hero again. And uh, so, so you kind of are taking turns making some of your secondary characters in the other. Yeah. In uh, the main in, character, which is awesome. Yeah. In, uh, in book two, Nico's son, uh, Marcus Landry is the main character and he winds up getting hired into the uh, diplomatic team team that is trying to negotiate a peace with the censorate. Um, and his ulterior motive in that is that it gives him a chance to, see his beloved uh, who he met on his first visit to the planet and it probably doesn't surprise you that the negotiations fail he has to flee back home leaving his you know his intended behind and he's pressed into the navy fighting to defend his world from the censorate and meanwhile she's trying to deal with the fact that you know these guys left a bunch of stuff like, oh, forbidden books and, you know, a whole bunch of heretical ideas. And she's having to deal with the consequences of that to clean up after her boyfriend's mess. Um, so that's, you know, part of what goes on in uh, Between Home and Ruin, which is the second book. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> Marcus, so uh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask. So, how do you think your characters would uh, interact with you if they found you in a dark alley and knew what you were responsible for? Um, Nico would be extremely pissed, but he's old and tired and would be unlikely to beat me up. Marcus would probably want to beat me up, but I'd remind him that if it wasn't for him, he would have never met his wife, and that would and he'd cut me some slack. That almost sounds like the prompt of a meme where like old and tired dudes sent to war because they just have no Fs left to give and they'll just make shit happen. <laughs> yeah, you know, and there's kind of, you know, some of what I deal with in the book in some of the later books is, okay, you know, here's the, the traditions of war, the rules of engagement that we're used to, and how do you work with those when... On the one hand, the enemy you're fighting sees no, has no interest in killing civilians, will cheerfully kill civilians as reprisals. And your allies never had the tradition of Geneva Conventions and such that you grew up with, and they're pissed and want to play rough. How do you, how do you deal with those conflicts? And can you get people to uh, fight a war in a humane manner? Or... Are you going to get infected by their attitude and you're going to wind up committing war crimes? Okay. So some deep philosophical themes going on. 
So we talked about uh, the characters in your story, um, the good and the bad. So when you write these characters, do you have a favorite character archetype or do you just sort of let the plot and the needs of the story dictate? Um, I will frequently wind up having folks appear who are, you know, as this, as the story requires, um, I tend to have a plot role and create a character to fill that plot role rather than have a character and see what happens, happens next. Um, but you know, my favorite character is very much the, the ordinary working stiff. I'm just trying to do, do my job. Oh no, I have been sucked into this horrible crisis and have to be a hero or things are going to totally go to hell. So what is it about the everyman that you like to write about? You think that makes it so appealing? I think, well, some of it is, you know, it's the type, you know, I know with the type of person I hang out with, the one I understand more, I mean, the, the true noble hero Aragorn type, I have not had a whole lot of empathy for. I mean, it's great to have him, you know, to have Superman show up and rescue you is great, but I don't really have the insight. I can't really project how a Superman is going to think about stuff. You know, so that's, that sort of steers me toward the kind of characters that I feel I can write well. Okay. So that's, that's a solid answer. So we know that um, every literary universe has its own con internally consistent rules of science, technology, and or magic. So obviously this one's going to have the tech and the uh, instead of magic, but uh, what kind of tech besides the um, um, hyperspace sort of vibe, uh, what kind of tech can we expect? Well, this is actually a little low tech because they've regressed a bit with erasing all of the inf you know you erase every book after its author dies so somebody has to frantically write a new book with that information you keep losing a bit of more information every generation and so their medical technology isn't as good their computer technology isn't good so there's actually a bit of superiority in the um, you know in the new contact books now, one of the things that the, you know, sensor at world is good at is any technology you can make an improvement in, in a single human lifespan, they can make progress on. So their anti-gravity technology is very good. So you wind up, you know, with housewives, you know, where housewives in our world will have a little two-wheel cart to bring home a load, of, to walk home with a load of groceries. You know, in this story, the housewife has a little anti-gravity cart that is just floating along that she tugs on a leash. So she doesn't even need to worry about bumping over potholes. Because you know, I could think of a lot of new mothers that would have liked to have that to stick instead of a stroller. Yeah. Stick the baby on. And uh, we meet a guy who's, you know, in a, he lost both legs in a fishing accident. Because fishing, fishing accident? Yes, because he was fishing for something uh, 10 times the size of a gi giant squid and significantly more attitude. Take that, Jaws. He tells the story of how his uh, legs got bitten off. So something to look forward to in, in this book. But he doesn't have a wheelchair. He's got a little float seat that he just hovers on and scoots around. 
because the anti-gravity tech is is that cheap there. So do you apply that to other tech? So like anti-gravity now, tanks don't need treads, they can float, that sort of thing? They can float if depending on how much armor. If they have enough armor, they still they still need treads. Okay. Because the anti-gravity is only so good. Um now we haven't seen a whole lot of tanks so far in the series because it's mostly been urban warfare. That's no fun. Okay. Ooh, I'm right, sorry, Doc, guys. Move, move us so, along before before we get all getting you know, into aliens. Do you have aliens in your series? Um, or are there the aliens and the reader just hasn't seen them yet? Storm Between the Stars does not have uh, aliens as such. It has genetically engineered humans because some have been modified. Uh, the first folks we meet on Corwent are actually Welsh who were uh, genetically engineered for skin cancer resistance, uh, which is you know, not a feature of the, the modern Welsh genome. Uh, but then we encounter some folks who I refer to as the zebras because they have essentially, you know, they are striped and they have very dark brown stripes and very pale pink stripes. And on the scalp, you will have tightly curled hair and straight blonde hair. And so these are folks who are genetically engineered. Why? Nobody knows. The history was erased. And in fact, they have, you know, talking to this zebra guy who's visiting from another planet. And in book four, you get to see his home planet. You know, they're talking about, it's like, yeah, nobody knows why we're this way. You know, some people think it was a reward. Some think it was a punishment, you know, but the actual information was erased. Okay. Um, so this is a question for you, dear listener, dear viewer. Uh, be sure to put it in the comment section, either on the YouTubes where you're listening and watching or over on Facebook where we share it. But uh, at what point in time does human super genetic modifications where they stop being human and they start being something else? And do you consider that something else an alien? Uh, that'd be a fun discussion. And you could, you could join in on that one with us, dear listener. So having said that, for now, we will assume that they are not aliens, that they're just weird humans. And, and I'll ask you this. If you were writing a different series where you did have aliens, how do you think you would go about it? Do you think you'd let Mother Nature inspire you? Would you make something completely up out of whole cloth? Would you let your dreams and your nightmares influence you? Like, how do you see yourself creating those? Okay. Well, uh, I can actually answer that from my fantasy novel because in The Lost War, our heroes encounter some orcs. And this was actually drawn from a discussion that I saw about people complaining about the Lord of the Rings movie. It's like, where are the female orcs? And it's like, well, you know, sexual dimorphism is really common in mammals, but are orcs actually a sexual dimorphic species? Do the males and females look different? Maybe they look exactly the same. And then that, you know, and then, okay, so you look at this band of orcs, they're actually, you know, 50-50 male and female. Well, how are they actually reproducing? You know, if neither of them is bearing the child, well, there are species on our planet who have solved that problem. There are wasps that will lay fertilized eggs in a caterpillar or a spider or something, and the eggs will hatch out and eat the host organism. And so, and, and I will admit that this creeped some people out. I have had at least one person say that they 
bailed out on the book because this creeped him out too much. So you have the orcs who look at humans as either food or host for, hosts for their young. And that makes, you know, a pretty creepy alien to have to deal with. Um, you know, and it's not a totally original. I mean, the famous alien movie with Sigourney Weaver had very much that exact same trope. Um, just folks don't expect that in a fantasy novel, but it did make things a little more difficult for the protagonists. So that's an example of drawing on mother nature to create a nasty monster. So the iconic Spaceballs movie also covered this trope, uh, only this one came out dancing and doing show tunes. But I mean, I, it's the same thing, basically. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> on that note, clearly this interview is winding down. But before we let you go, was there anything about Storm Between the Stars, which is the first book of the Fall of Censor series in the series writ large, that uh, we didn't ask that you wanted to tell us about? Um, I think, you know, You've captured the stuff. I think it's just, you know, for all of the stuff about the big picture tropes and stuff, this is a fun adventure of some working stiffs getting plunged into a very unexpected situation outside their depths and rising to the occasion to become heroes. And I think a lot of people will enjoy the hell out of that. So I urge them to try it. Okay. Uh, before we let you go, dear listener, dear viewer, uh, this is that time of the interview where I remind you to uh, do your part. Please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right books. Uh, and seriously, they they really will help people find you know the, the good stories. And obviously, we want more of those out in the world. So uh, if, you, if you could help out, he would greatly appreciate it. He is on all of the sites. So if you find his books, go everywhere you bought it and write a review. Go to Goodreads, BookBub. Uh, start a website just so you can write a review of how awesome the Censor series is. But do your part, people. It really does make a difference in the uh, literary worlds, as they say. Uh, and sometimes people like Doc make TikToks, which apparently is a thing where they dance or something. I don't know. Yes, the dancing part is why you can't ever get on it, JR. You'll break your camera. This is true. But so do you dance when you do? I don't dance band? either. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't dance. Uh, I'm not really any better than you are about that. So. <laughs> All right. With that said, Carl, before we let you go, uh, Carl K. Gallagher is what he publishes as. Can you tell listeners how they can find you on the wild, wild interwebs? Okay. Um, best way to find me is to go to my Substack, uh, gallagherstories.substack.com. Uh, and you will, that will get you a free store, free short story every month and also announcements of new novels. Uh, you can find my books on Amazon and Audible, and uh, I will opinionate about stuff and promote other writers on Twitter. Thank you very much for having me. All right. And you can find us, dear listener, over on Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show, Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email the show at blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. Again, Blasters and Blades podcast at gmail.com. We have a Facebook group where all the shenanigans happen, and it's facebook.com backslash groups backslash Blasters and Blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash Blasters and Blades podcast. 
we have a Facebook page, which we are working on getting a dedicated URL, but that requires you to do your part, people, and hit the like and follow over there. It is different than the Facebook group, uh, the pages. We have a website where you can listen to our shows over at anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades, where you can also support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. You can help keep the lights on. Podcasting doesn't happen for free, and all of the programs that run it cost money every year. So we really do appreciate your support. Speaking of support, if you wanted to support the show more directly, you could do so over at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Be sure to put in the, pod, uh, in the comment section that it is for the podcast. There is no podcast action. In the comment section that it is for the podcast. And I promise I will keep my co-hosts, Doc Seska and Nick Garber, duly caffeinated. They will drink until their liver explodes. I need more coffee. We all need more coffee. We really should get like a coffee and a mead company to sponsor us. But what are you going to do? <laughs> you Drink think those coffee. actually happen? Like, I- I'm just doing it for the free coffee. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see what I can do. All right. There you go, Doc. It's time to bring it home. Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. We really do appreciate it. Be sure to check out Carl on behalf of uh, Nick Garber, <laughs> the absentee one, the- JR. Uh, this was the Blasters and Plays podcast. We'll be back next week. Same time, same place. Lo- indulging our love of cheesy jokes, nerdy culture, and of course, all things that go boom and pineapple on the pizzas.